0: Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We hope you are enjoying this OITE review. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Woolwine are actually doing this podcast review series for the orthopedic in-training exam, and we are starting off with trauma. So if this is your first time listening to this podcast, go ahead and hit that subscribe button and tell a friend. If you're in residency, tell your co-residents. If you are a uh, attendee listening to this, let your residents know about this. It's just an awesome source. But anyways, nonetheless, we will continue on with our trauma review today. We will continue where we left off on last episode. We will talk about the humeral shaft fractures and we'll go all the way down to the olecranon. So without further ado, please enjoy our episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the Orthopedic Surgery Podcast, featuring Doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole.
1: Um, And I know that you talked about the uh, four or five uh, DCP plates uh, briefly, just because of their early saved weight bearing. Um, what, what sort of, uh, fracture characteristics, uh, kind of lead you towards, um, primary versus secondary bone healing?
0: Yeah, this is going you know back straight to you know ao basic you know what what you know fracture healing and primary versus secondary bone healing like you were just saying so it, you look at the fracture and you look at the fracture characteristics so you know if the if the fracture line is amenable to primary bone healing you know you may have a simple transverse you may have a simple like oblique or a spiral fracture if it's not Heavily comminuted, you may be able to get lag screws and use a a plate or four or five DCP plate in neutralization mode. Uh, And with that, you want at least, you know, maybe three to four screws on each side. So you at least have eight cortices of contact. And if it's a highly comminuted fracture, that's something that you would use the plate, but you'd use it in a bridging mode. So you'd be getting secondary healing. Uh, you know, you kind of have micro motion and you're in motion at, those, at those, um, or those bone fragments causing, you know, healing by secondary intention. Now, you know, what are some of the, we spoke briefly a little bit earlier when we were talking about, uh, you know, two-part fractures and, and nailing, you know, or at least using an intramedullary nail uh, for those proximal humerus fractures, but when we're thinking about humeral shaft fractures, what are some of the options for intramedullary nailing? And what are some of the structures that are at risk during interlock screw placement?
1: Uh, yeah, so uh, uh, similar to the femur, you can go antegrade or retrograde. Um, I would say antigrade is primarily used for the adult population. You see a lot of retrograde flexing nails with the pediatrics, uh, but you do have the shoulder issues like we talked about before with the uh, rotator cuff. Um, you can uh, go through the rotator interval. It does require some uh, manipulation of the proximal fragment, but that helps you avoid the rotator cuff. Uh, retrograde nailing through the uh, uh, olecranon fossa in, in adults, but again, it's not commonly used, or at least I haven't really seen it. Maybe diff- yeah, me either. Has different uh, kind of uh, uh, surgeon preferences, um, but As we're doing these integrated screws, or integrated nails, excuse me, um, the uh, distally, uh, you want to be cautious of the uh, radial nerve if you're doing the lateral to medial uh, perfect circles, uh, and then the musculocutaneous for the AP screws. Um, And how this is commonly tested is it'll talk about a patient that had humerus fracture, intramedullary nails, but they come back for their two-week post-op and they're saying that they have decreased sensation over the volar lateral forearm, which is the continuation of the musculocutaneous nerve and after it's innervated uh, biceps and brachialis.
0: right yeah yeah those are all um strong points and again you know just just making sure you know your anatomy and knowing when you're putting those a to P screws you know your musculoscutaneous nerve is at risk and when you're doing those lateral to medial screws that your, your radial nerve is going to be at risk um so we talked a little bit about plating and we talked about a little bit about nailing is there any difference in outcomes or, or any or union rates for nailing versus uh, plating for these humeral shaft fractures?
1: So similar, uh, similar union rates and functional outcomes between them. Um, there's a few studies out there that uh, talk about uh, intramedullary nailing with higher degree of shoulder. Impingement and need for reoperation. I think that's the key point: is that the need for reoperation. And the study there is that uh, uh, meta-analysis by Dr. Bendari with the compression plating versus intramedullary nailing of humeral shaft fractures. Um, they just found that uh, dynamic compression uh, plating was uh, led to lower reoperation rates. And um, some consider ORIF to be the gold standard, um, but uh, as will be the topic throughout our careers, but but, uh, can be found for one, uh, technique, we can refute it with another study. So, uh, I think it's just good to use, uh, good surgical practices, uh, good surgical technique and, and using what's good in your hands. I mean, if, if the ORIF with a plate is what you do and it's what you're good at, then by all means, go ahead and do it. And same goes for the intramedullary nails.
0: Yeah, totally agree. And, and so in patients that, um, you yeah, know, we, we briefly mentioned a little bit earlier, but in patients that have a humeral shaft fracture and an associated radial nerve palsy, how long does it take for the nerve function to return?
1: Uh, what seems like forever, especially, for <laughs> <the patients. laughs> um, yeah. it's, it's one of those where, I mean, you're seeing them back on a fairly regular basis because you, you want to catch it as soon as possible, but it, can take up to three to six months for about 92% of them to resolve. Um, And uh, if they don't resolve by about six weeks, um, I would say most still get an EMG, even though that's still controversial since they can still recover up to six months. I would say that most still do get it just because you wanna try and catch these complete uh, nerve palsies as uh, early as possible so that you can refer them out to either a, a, a neurovascular specialist like a hand and upper extremity surgeon uh, that can do an autograph versus a nerve conduit. Um, but a lot of them do recover. It does take patients. It does take a lot of patient education and coddling, but um, a lot of them do recover. And when we're looking for the recovery, um, what's typically the uh, the first and last things we look for.
0: Yeah. So at least tested wise, uh, one of the things that returns first is, is a brachioradialis. And I'm trying to think of a way to remember that. I, I, like, you know, I guess, it, you know, it helps radial deviation. Um, but I don't have a good way to remember that besides just brute memory. Uh, but the last thing to return is going to be your EPL and, and your EIP. So I guess you're the the last thing you'll be able to do is give somebody a thumbs up. Maybe maybe that's the way to remember it. Um, yeah. That's one of the last things as far and, and point your finger at them. So the last things you're going to be able to do is 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 look at them and say, "Doc, you did it!" And by pointing your finger at them. That's EIP, and then giving them a thumbs up. That's EPL. So that's the last thing that returns in um, in, in cases of radial nerve palsy. Now another topic that we always ask about uh what are and, and what is an indication to acutely explore a radial nerve in the setting of a humeral shaft fracture
1: um so one is a open fracture but an open fracture from a, a non-ballistic penetrating wound so like a a knife or Uh, something else like that would be a good indication to acutely explore the radial nerve. Um, With open fractures, you're probably going to go in and debride it and make sure that it's not uh, incarcerated within the uh, fracture site itself. Um, The gunshot wounds, I think, are a little bit controversial, um, especially, I mean, not the low-velocity gunshot wounds because those are most likely due to uh, just a, a kind of blunt trauma to the tissues from the bullet, but high velocity uh, rounds um, can damage your nerve more. So you may wanna explore those. Uh, And then uh, obviously like we're doing down in the ER, we're checking uh, nerve function before reduction and after reduction. So if if it is in before you reduce, you reduce, you go and put a coaptation splint on, you come and check on them 15, 20 minutes later, and it is out then you want to uh, consider taking off that splint, taking it down, and getting it back before you attempt another close reduction.
0: Yep. And yeah.
1: And then uh, no, go yeah. Ahead. Uh, for the uh, humeral shaft non-unions, let's say we, we did everything right, or at least we thought, and they developed a non-union. What type of, uh, what's your uh, game plan now?
0: Well, you know, with non-unions, and I think, you know, you can kind of use the same principle and, you know, attacking all of them is first, you kind of develop what the non-union type, you determine what the non-union type is. So you take a look at the x-rays. Is there a bunch of, grow, uh, of of bone that's trying to grow a bunch of callus? Is there no callus? You know, so is it an atrophic non-union? Uh, is it a hypertrophic non-union where you see a bunch of callus? Or is it kind of an oligotrophic uh, non-union where it's a, a little bit in between? Um, so atrophic non-unions, um, those need stability and they need biology because you know this not the, the bones aren't um, uh, aren't aren't healing the way that it should. So for those, you're gonna plate and you're gonna graft those. For the hypertrophic uh, non-unions, where you go and you see an abundant of callus formation, you know that the bone wants to wants to wants to wants to, uh, wants to heal. But it just needs some stability. So for those, you will plate those. So again, humeral shaft non-unions, determine what the type of non-union it is. If it's an atrophic non-union, it needs some biology. So plate it and graft it. If it's hypertrophic, it needs some stability. So plate it. Um, Now, moving on down the limb a little bit further, we can uh, touch on some distal humerus fractures. So what are the, I guess, the kind of groups of uh, distal humerus fractures?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, kind of the AO classification of these, we're looking at the uh, like 13 uh, or like class 13 fractures. So one is the humerus, three is the distal portion. Uh, so we're looking at supracondylar, which has no intraarticular extension. You can get a single column fracture or a bicolumnar fractures. Um, just kind of increasing in complexity and, uh, uh, kind of fractured displacement there. Um, but when you're evaluating these, um, because it's around the elbow and you have so many deforming forces, uh, good things to, uh, initially do is, uh, consider a traction view. So kind of pulling on that arm, not crazy, causing too much pain, but gives you a good kind of idea of, uh, what's going on, uh with the uh, fracture lines. And then um, obviously you can get a CT scan with or without 3D recons uh, to help further characterize the, uh, the fracture there. Um, but if we're looking at a classification, because there has to be a classification for everything in orthopedics. <laughs> if not, we would be unable to uh, proceed as a specialty. So uh, <laughs> classification scheme or system for uh, distal humerus fractures.
0: Yeah, you know, for these single column, you um, your these condyle distal humerus fractures, it's, a, it's called the MILCH classification. And, and this is for both medial and lateral column fractures. So, a MILCH one, you know, the big thing with this is you want to look to see if the trochlear ridge is intact. So, a MILCH one is a fracture where the trochlear ridge is intact. So, the fracture line does not go through the trochlear ridge. And Milch two is when the trochlear ridge is not intact, and you know the significance behind that is because if the fracture line goes through the trochlear ridge, your elbow stability is compromised. And so, you know, when you look at, at treating these, you know, some may treat um, non-displaced Milch one uh, fractures where uh, where the trochlear ridge is in, intact. They may immobilize them. So when they immobilize them. You may immobilize them in supination uh, for lateral column fractures and in pronation for medial column fractures. Uh, but some also, if you have a MILCH-1 that is displaced, a lot of people will fix those. So you can you know, fix those with plates, or some people will pin those. So there are different ways to skin a cat. And then definitely for MILCH-2, where the trochlear ridge is not intact, you you need to fix those open reduction internal fixation. You want absolute stability. You want to make sure your your, your joint is a, is congruent. Uh, now now what is a goal with you know treatment of intraarticular distal humerus fractures? What's the overall goal?
1: Um. So one one thing is because of the intraarticular nature of it, you want an anatomic reduction, just like we all know through AO basic, um, but. Uh, Uh, equally as important is the uh, elbow likes to get stiff. You look at it wrong, it'll get stiff. So (laughs) early range of motion and you want very little immobilization times um, with these just because they, um, you will lose range of motion. You have to educate your patients on this. And um, it is a testable fact that uh, the most common complications with these are uh elbow stiffness uh,
0: Yeah. And then for sure.
1: with the uh, uh plating techniques uh there's several different ways we can do it um we've heard about parallel we've heard about uh orthogonal um what are your thoughts on on both of those
0: yeah so i mean there's literature to support both uh, parallel plating and, and orthogonal plating you know, I, I think, you know, studies have shown that biomechanically speaking, the uh, parallel plating is, is strongest. And are studies by uh, O'Driscoll, uh, who has done a lot uh, in the shoulder, I'm sorry, in the elbow, in the elbow realm or ext- upper extremity realm. Um, but there's literature to support both. But I know, you know, many trauma surgeons will say, you know, you kind of do what the fractures, what, what the fractures need. You know, you put your plates where it's needed for uh, stability and, and, and fracture uh, and fracture fixation. So, but if it's a us question, uh, parallel plating has uh, been shown to be biomechanically the strongest. Um, and so when we go and, you know, talk about distal humerus fractures, a lot of us, uh, or a lot of, uh, of surgeons use a, a posterior approach, um, but there are different options for the posterior approach to get down to the distal humerus that shows you uh, differing levels of visualization. So uh, can you kind of walk us through what some of these different approaches are?
1: Uh, yes. So you have the uh, paratricepital, you have the uh, triceps splitting uh, or reflecting uh, uh, techniques, and then uh, olecranon osteotomy. So when you keep the uh, triceps on, you um, and you're working through kind of your medial and lateral windows, uh, making sure that you're uh, identifying and isolating the ulnar nerve over the uh, ulnar aspect. And then um, with the olecranon osteotomy, it does provide the best visualization of the distal humerus and is commonly used with intraarticular extension, but uh, definitely uh, not used in every single fracture pattern.
0: Right. And, and when you're doing an olecranon non-osteotomy, uh, what type of cut is, uh, it provides the most stability?
1: Uh, the uh, chevron where it's, um, it's definitely more stable than a transverse or an oblique osteotomy. It provides increased uh, surface area and contact. Um, and you want to do it at least two centimeters distal to the triceps insertion so that you have a good bone stock that won't pull out uh, after fixation.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned a little bit earlier about the ulnar nerve. Is there, you know, is there any clear benefit from ulnar nerve transposition during um, open reduction internal fixation for these distal humerus fractures?
1: No, it hasn't been proven in any studies. Um, there's some that just do it instinctively, but others that do it on a more judicious level. But it doesn't necessarily provide any benefit.
0: Yeah, and so you know when we look at these. These patients, you know, sometimes you have a lot of these elderly patients that come in with very comminuted intraarticular humerus fracture. So say, for example, we have a very, you know, low demand, sedentary, 84 year old patient who somehow slipped and fell and sustained this highly comminuted intraarticular distal humerus fracture. Is there any difference between total elbow arthroplasty versus open reduction internal fixation uh, for these patients?
1: Oh, yeah. For the uh, elderly uh, patients here, uh, the total elbow arthroplasty has been shown to improve function and decrease the overall reoperation rates. And that was a publication from the Journal of uh, Shoulder and Elbow Surgery in 2009 uh, titled a multi-center perspective, randomized controlled trial of ORIF versus total elbow arthroplasty for, uh, elderly patients. Um, the downside to these is, and I know that elderly has, uh, typically a, like a lower demand nature associated with it, but, uh, is the weight bearing status for these total elbow arthroplasties. They are less than five pounds for life in these, uh, upper extremity injuries.
0: Yeah. And it's just, but, uh, just straight straight pens and you know you can't really lift up a milk milk uh, jug or anything like that you know
1: yeah and um if we let's say we have an elderly patient um they may benefit from ORIF, so we attempt to do that in the first place um would you plan to do an electron osteotomy for them or would you try your best to avoid that and why
0: yeah, no, I mean, if I'm, you know, if there's an elderly patient that, that you're even considering doing a total elbow on you know, you have that thought in your mind, I would not do an, um, an non osteotomy because you'll have issues with the component fixation. Okay. Uh, so you want to preserve the proximal ulna and, you know, you can kind of do this using a, a trisor sparing approach if, if you're trying to fix it at first, but, you know, once you, once you do your osteotomy, then, you know, it's, you have a, a hard time trying to, um, trying to fix those components for a total elbow arthroplasty so just be hesitant uh before you do a another like you know, an, uh, OCI, I mean a patient that you want to do a total elbow on and uh, I, i've seen this question asked many times but what is the most common complication following a open reduction in internal fixation of a distal humerus they get stiff every single one of them yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, it's a unfortunate, big thing. but you, But you, that's why you want to
1: provide such a uh, robust and stable insta- or stability according to kind of O'Driscoll's principles, which um, uh, we don't necessarily have to go over, but because they're harped on in every residency. But um, <laughs> you want to wanna get these patients moving
0: as early as
1: possible. And so um, uh, you want to just prevent that stiffness.
0: Yeah. And, and so now moving forward to, you know, fractures of the capitellum. Is there a classification system? Si- well, we know there's a classification system based on we're in the field of orthopedics, yeah. but what is the classification system? Like what are some of the things you should be on the lookout for for these capitellum fractures?
1: Yeah, so it's uh, the Brian Mori and uh, type one through four. Uh, type one is a uh, complete capitellum fracture. a Type two is a shearing uh, fracture of the articular cartilage. So it's kind of a... Um, like you'll see a, a C sign. It's not the entire capitellum itself, but it's just the kind of subchondral bone and articular surface. Uh, type three is a comminuted capitellum. And then the type four is a coronal shear, but it also uh, extends over into the trochlea itself. And um, it's, these are intraarticular fractures. Um, so what's typically your uh, treatment algorithm for non-op op management?
0: Yeah, so, you know, for these for these non-displaced fractures, um, some some people treat these non-operatively with splinting, uh, but for anything that is displaced, anything more, definitely more than two millimeters, you know, they they uh, benefit from open reduction and internal fixation. And sometimes for these highly comminuted capitellum fractures, Fractures. Uh, Someone consider uh, this fragment excision uh, if you can't, you know, get a way to uh, uh, fix it or hold it in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we talked about that that type four capitellum fracture where you have the coronal shift that includes both the capitellum and the trochlea. So you know, you're, you're talking about your radiocapitellar joint as well as your ulnohumeral joint. Uh, what is you know what's kind of the recommended approach for these type four capitellum fractures?
1: Uh, So one, uh, you can uh, do a lateral approach, um, which uh, is similar to like a lateral epicondyle fracture for a pediatric patient. And if you can visualize everything and then use headless compression screws once you've reduced the fracture, but uh, similar to other fractures of the distal humerus an olecranon osteotomy could be used, um, which can provide kind of more Uh, thorough visualization of the capitellum and the trochlea you can clamp it and then again use headless compression screws since you are in the uh, articular cartilage uh, fixing these fractures Um, and now since we've talked about creating our own fractures in the olecranon what about uh, a just regular old run-of-the-mill olecranon fractures Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, uh, treating non-displaced fractures
0: yeah, you know, um, non-displaced, you know, olecranon fractures themselves are, are pretty rare. You know, you have the you know, pull of the soft tissues at the triceps kind of being one of the deforming forces, uh, you know, on the olecranon. But for those that are truly non-displaced, uh, you know, in, in the correct patient, some may, you know, treat those non-operatively and splint them in, you know, either six anywhere from 60 to 90 degrees of flexion for about 7 to 10 days and then start them off with range of motion. Again, you know, big thing is you don't want to immobilize the elbow for too long. You want to start them off with some uh, range of motion. Uh, now, what about our uh, displaced non-commuted elecanon fractures? How do we treat those?
1: So this is the classic AO tension band uh, construct. They, they show pictures all over the place. Um, you can do uh, tension band wiring versus tension band screws, which um, essentially what what you do is you, you're placing your pins or your screw across the fracture site, uh, close to the uh, kind of uh, articular surface. And then you're running a tension band across the posterior surface uh, to turn those tensile forces across the posterior electron into compressive forces across the joint. And uh, that's a a good way to provide that kind of compressive uh, absolute stability with uh, uh, primary bone healing that you want to see in the articular cartilage uh, or uh, subchondral bone of the articular cartilage. And then uh, you can also, you can kind of get the same sort of idea by placing a plate uh, over that aspect and compressing across the tension side of that uh, fracture uh, for the kind of same concept. Um, and if you are going to do the classic kind of tension band wiring with K wires, uh, what uh, what sort of things do you want to be careful of?
0: Yeah, so you want to be careful, you mm-hmm. know, of of K wires that that penetrate that that cortex um you know cuz it can be associated with a possible AIN or anterior interosseous nerve injury it can also be associated with you know uh, or patients can have a risk for diminished rotation even though if the k wires you know penetrate that cortex they are less likely to back out because you know you have another cortex of fixation so uh, you just have to be wary um, and that is, and just know that it's associated with an injury and you can have a risk for decreased rotation. Now, in older, low-demand patients with a a displaced olecranon fracture, um, is operative treatment better than non-operative treatment?
1: You know, not necessarily. Uh, they do have pretty satisfactory short and long-term outcomes, Uh uh, in patients treated both operatively and non-operatively. And that's a, uh, study by, uh, Dr. Duck, Duckworth out of JBJS in 2014. Um, we kind of came up with those or found those results. Um, but what, uh, if you do want to do surgery on these kind of elderly patients that really don't have a good reconstructable proximal ulna fracture, uh, what are some, uh, kind of
0: salvage procedures you have in your tool belt? Yeah. So these, again, again, these low demand patients that, that have these like, you know, non reconstructable proximal echonon fractures, uh, a couple different techniques so is one thing you can do is you can excise the fragments and, and, and advance the triceps tendon. Um, and with that, when you do that, you, you want to attach the triceps tendon closer to the articular surface because it helps with stability. So fragment excision with triceps advancement. And again, you can attach the tendon closer to the surface. So it helps with stability. Now, what are some of the complications after open reduction, internal fixation of olecranon fractures?
1: Uh, stiffness, because we're around the elbow yep. still. Uh, but um, the uh, uh, because the elbow is, uh, I mean, directly or the uh, olecranon is directly subcutaneous placing a plate or even uh pins and a wire uh can be very bothersome for the patients and they have uh, hardware prominence that um a lot of times does get taken out because they're they're really unable to kind of lean on their elbows or place their elbows down on a on a counter or a table and uh it just bothersome for them down the road
0: yeah uh, i'm just i can just feel in my own like olecranon yeah. like yeah and like that has to be you know pretty uncomfortable I, I can't lie i can feel my tendon and everything and you imagine a plate on top of that how um how uh, annoying that could be and you know definitely people would want to get that out or have a higher rate of having another uh, surgery to get that taken out thank you all for listening to that episode we hope you all enjoyed it and learned a little bit more about Humeral Shaft Fractures Down to the Elecranon. Stay tuned for our next episode. We'll continue on and finish the rest of the... Uh, we'll almost finish the rest of the forum. it will be just a little tiny baby episode afterwards. Again, please hit that subscribe button. And please go and take three seconds out of your day to uh, leave us a review, whether that's in iTunes or in Spotify. That would severely uh, help us out a lot. So please do that. And and follow us on Instagram at naileditortho, N-A-I-L-E-D-I-T-O-R-T-H-O. All right, until next time.